This program is brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu. Your topic, as you know, is cultural diplomacy. And uh, I can't think of anybody better to talk about it than you, or to be interrogated by me, I think is what, what we, That's what we agreed. And um, everybody here knows exactly who you are, and they know that you are probably the dean of uh, orchestral management, and they know about you at New York Phil and Chicago. But I don't know about you, but whenever I'm introduced, I always think I wouldn't quite have said it like that. So I don't know whether, uh, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect there's a strong relationship between your interest in cultural diplomacy and your professional formation, for want of a better word. So I'd love you just to say a little bit about, as it were, the earlier parts of your career before we move in. And it isn't my intention to be standing here for the next two hours, so Good. have a seat. Well, I don't know about the diplomacy, diplomacy necessarily comes out of the background, but since I was born and educated in India, then was further educated in England and lived in Canada for almost 30 years and then moved to this country, there's a certain background there in not being rooted to any one particular system of government or method of thinking. And, you know, coming from India, you also end up in such a polyglot atmosphere of 18 languages and castes and colors and foods and everything else that you don't have a narrow-minded approach. And the ones that are narrow-minded, which of course in my country many are, uh, give rise to the kind of problems that I think through cultural diplomacy we try and avoid. When I went to Canada, uh, the background also is that I'm an accountant, the equivalent of a CPA. That was my formation, my education, and I went to Canada to practice that. And while I was practicing it, uh, I also experienced something else that may have helped me in, quotes, cultural diplomacy, that I lived in Quebec as an Anglophone. And having grown up speaking three languages quite naturally, learning it on the streets of Bombay, the idea of learning French seemed perfectly natural to me. I didn't think of how I could live in Montreal, which was 60% francophone, or in Quebec, which was 80% francophone as a province, and not speak French. Yet the accounting firm that I was associated with which had been set up in the 1860s, it was basically an Anglophone firm, had 80% of its employees were, were French-Canadian, but they had to work in English because the other 20% didn't speak French, nor did they have any intention of learning French. And that quite naturally grated against me. Don't ask me why, but it just did. I just couldn't understand. And I remember when I did have children saying to them, if you're going to take advantage of the society around you, you've got French theater, French films, French food, and Anglophone food, and all the other immigrants who come to Canada and maintain their identity, whether they're Ukrainians or Greeks or Haitians, 
And so I said, you want to take advantage of it all. So we all learned French. And I sent my children to French schools and to French universities. And they still speak French. So that helped me when I went to work for the Montreal Symphony, which was my first job in the cultural area, that here was somebody that, I mean, when I was given the job, there were editorials in the major newspapers saying, how can they, how can the Montreal Symphony engage an Anglophone to run its affairs? That's the kind of atmosphere that existed. The separation movement had started just about at that time. And I had to prove myself to the separatist government that, hey, I'm an Indian and I speak French. <laughs> and you know, all that helped, and that helped form my thinking that we have to do more than just stay narrowly in your own backyard. That's the basis of my thinking. It just came naturally to me. So, so how did that, that inform your agenda? How was that how, how did how did that basic um, perception inform your professional agenda as an arts administrator? In other words, what are the things that you did and have done that specifically, as it were, um, exemplify that agenda? And of course, one of the things that I'd like you to tell us about um, is uh, the trip to North Korea. Um, not just the what, but also <coughs> both the why and the how. So, in other words, if, if, if that's your worldview, how did that worldview lead you to um, uh, territory that you wouldn't otherwise have been led to? You want me to jump to North Korea first? Um, I think so, because it's such yep. a spectacularly, um, uh, th there are so many uh, interesting angles to that story, so why not? Well, let me give you for a few minutes a little background specifically for the New York Philharmonic, which also fell into this thing quite naturally in that, well, let me talk about North Korea. When that happened, uh, it was in August 2007, when the whole orchestra was on vacation, most of my staff were on vacation, that's the off season for us, and a little, news item appeared and uh, one of my PR people brought it to me saying this was in some wire service from Seoul saying that the New York Philharmonic had been invited to play in North Korea which of course made all of us laugh. So where did this come from? And so we just pushed it aside. Um, I then got a piece of paper with a stamp of the Ministry of Culture of, from Pyongyang officially inviting us to perform there with a phone number. And this time it hit the New York Times and many of my musicians who were on vacation started sending me emails saying, what's this going on? What are you planning now? Are you taking us to North Korea? And I say this as a background that our orchestra has been used to going to unusual events, if you like. I mean, North Korea was obviously the most extreme of that. But in 1959, with Lenny Bernstein, we had gone to Russia and played there. 
and Lenny had made an overt gesture towards Solzhenitsyn, um, who was of course in, going to be jailed shortly. Uh, he had gone various places like Romania and so on with the orchestra. We were used to playing that, so it wasn't nothing new. A few years before, we had been invited to go to Dresden. Now you might think that's not such an unusual place today. But the reason for going there was important. You all know about the firebombing of Dresden in the final days of the war. One of the symbols of the city that had been bombed was the Fraukesche, the Church of Our Lady, which had been obliterated in, in the bombing in February 1945. And I had seen it as a rubble in the 80s when I'd visited Dresden for the first time. And I had asked my hosts, these Germans at the time, why they had not either cleared the rubble or why they had not built it up. And they said, this is a symbol of the destruction, destructive power of the West. So I said, yes, but you know, you were at war with the West and it was the Germans who had started the war. They said, no, no, that wasn't us. We were communists. We were in concentration camps. They completely de denied any culpability. I said, yes, all 10 million East Germans were communists, naturally. <coughs> anyway, when the wall came down and Germany got reunified, a lot of people here decided that they wanted to rebuild the church. And one of the people that gave a million dollars for the rebuilding was a rather remarkable man called Gunther Blöber, whom I knew, who was a Nobel Prize winner, who was at Rockefeller University. And through him and some other people I knew, they said, wouldn't it be wonderful if when the church is built, if there was some way of rapprochement between Germany and America on this particular thing, because of course it was not clear which was it the British bombs or the American bombs, etc. Anyway, I didn't need to be persuaded any further that we should go and do something. And in the end, in 2005, the New York Philharmonic went to Dresden and we played three concerts in the Frankreicher for the rededication of the church. And we played with a cellist from Dresden and we asked the British composer to write a piece, an elegy. So that was the first piece that was played there. American orchestra, a German cellist, and a British work. That's the kind of thing that we've been used to doing. So when North Korea came around, it's kind of natural to react positively if there was any sense to it. What happened next was I called the State Department and said, we have this invitation, we have no um, diplomatic relations with North Korea, I don't even know where to go from here, or whether this is a legitimate invitation, etc. So they checked it out and said, yes, it's a legitimate invitation, and we don't mind if you go. I said, come on, this is not the way to do things. It costs millions of dollars to go there and all kinds of organizational arrangements, etc. 
And I said, I don't know anything about North Korea. So they said, well, we should contact the only North Koreans who are in America, which is their delegation to the United Nations. So we called the ambassador to the United Nations. And he said, I would like to come and see you. So two of them came with two rather interesting gentlemen who were former American diplomats who were the head of the Korea Society of America, whose role it was to try and bring the Korean Peninsula together and to have Americans be more involved in trying to bring that about. So we had talks with them, and I could spend hours going through all the little details. But from that resulted a desire on their part, saying that they had this. I said, when do you want us to come? They said, in November. This was now September. <laughs> I said, no, we plan things three years ahead. They said, no, no, you have to do it right now. <laughs> uh, and the next day I had a phone call with a man by the name of Christopher Hill, who was an undersecretary of state, who again, this is quite, uh, how could I put it? Coincidental, I suppose. Chris Hill was a US ambassador to Seoul two years before when we played there in South Korea. And he came to our concert and we had dinner and we got to know each other and you know, that was it. He was our ambassador and we uh, paid our respects to him. He then became the chief negotiator in the multilateral talks with North Korea. And I think he must have said something as talks are progressing about creating normalization of relations by some kind of exchange. And I think he mentioned the New York Philharmonic. And he doesn't quite remember having actually said it. <laughs> but the North Koreans heard something. Otherwise, why would they? I mean, obviously, I've said this privately before. If they invited the Pittsburgh Symphony, nobody would have known. But they invited the New York Philharmonic, so the whole world sat up and took notice. And so he came to see us and talk to us and to the whole orchestra about the importance of this if it could be worked out. They would give us diplomatic support, logistical support, not financial support because, you know, the U.S. is a third world country. It has no money for culture. That's another thing we'll talk about. Um, so we started to make some plans with the help of the ambassador to the United Nations. And the next step was, since this was legitimate, they said, yes, there's hotels. Yes, Madeleine Albright had been there a few years before, and the two people from the Korea Society had been with her. Uh, that there's a lot of culture there. They have concerts, they have an orchestra, they have a conservatoire, uh, concert halls. And I said, well, we have to go and check it out before we do anything. We do that if we, when we went to Dresden or any new place like that, we check it out. And um, seven of us flew there, and we found out that the only way to go to Pyongyang is from Beijing. You can either take a train, and I don't know if you remember your geography, Beijing's here, 
Pyongyang is there, and the train would have to go like that, across the famous Yalu River, and down to Pyongyang, or you can take a plane that goes directly across twice a week. <laughs> and if you go on a Sunday, you have to stay till Thursday. But that's the next time the plane comes. So we said, okay. <coughs> we flew to Beijing. Uh, we got our visas from the North Korean embassy in Beijing. They were already prepared. Everything was organized. We arrived at the airport. We, were, we had with us a Korean lady who worked for the State Department and this man from the Korea Society and our musician and our travel representative and my PR director, etc. <coughs> and we were, not, we were not prepared for the flight. It was a 1950s illusion which was put together with band-aid and rubber bands. Uh, and we looked at each other and said, if this is the only plane, there's no way we can go because how do you get 140 spoiled New York Philharmonic musicians on a plane like this, or three planes like this, which they didn't have. We said, we're here, we might as well carry on. We landed in Pyongyang, and I must say it was a scary flight. Why those planes don't crash is beyond me. <coughs> um, it was October. We went into the arrival thing, and then we were quickly ushered out of there into a VIP area where we were greeted and then we went back to the same arrivals area because it had to be a show. And they checked our bags and put them through detection devices as we entered. We surrendered our cell phones, we were given little receipts. Um, I think there were, something happened a few years before I found out where somebody had exploded a bomb in a railway station remotely by a cell phone, so the cell phones were taken away. And then we got out of the airport and there was a fleet of cars uh, ready to take us to our hotel. And I was shown the front car because I was President Meta. That's how I was referred to for four days. And it was a Mercedes. And I said to the head of the delegation, aren't you coming with me? And he wasn't quite sure what to do. Because I think he'd been ordered for me to go alone in state. I said, no, that's not how I'm going to do it. You come with me. And there were other cars where the rest of the, my colleagues walked in. And the first thing I was told was that we were not going to the hotel that we'd been that we had booked through the embassy, but we were going to something called a government guest house. And the lady from the State Department said very quickly to me, she said, don't say anything, this is an extraordinary honor, this is reserved for heads of state. That's how important they took this visit to be. We arrived there and this, we were shown to our rooms, I was given a three-room suite. And when I say each room was bigger than this room, uh, and you know that people are starving there, and they had a full staff, and there was going to be a dinner with the Minister of Culture that night in, the, in this place, 
And they said, once you've opened your luggage, etc., come down and we'll talk about the schedule. So they showed us schedule. And the schedule very simply had two days of sightseeing where the dear leader was buried, where the dear leader was born, uh, some school where they have they teach children how to do calligraphy, nothing to do with our concert. And I immediately figured out this is a propaganda thing. They want us to go there so they can take pictures of the New York Philharmonic representatives laying flowers on the tomb of the dear leader, things like that. I didn't know quite how to react, so I said very firmly, I said, look, we're here to look to see whether we can do a concert or not. And I think that's the first thing we're going to establish. And then three days later, if we have time, we'll go and do some sightseeing of places that we will choose. And I didn't know how they would react. But I was very firm and I decided because of some other experiences I'd had that with these kind of people, I'd done that in East Germany about 20 years before, if you don't tell the underlings exactly how you want to do things, in this kind of a society, they will take you over. But if you're firm with them, they will come back to you with something. And they all said, we will get back to you. Sure enough, they couldn't make the decision. It had to go up somewhere, up the ladder. At dinner that night with the minister, they said yes, they would take us to some concert halls, some hotels, some restaurants. I said, we want to see the music school. All that was lined up for the next two days. So we started the next day. Incidentally, the beds, they have mattresses, but the mattresses are like they're made of wood shavings. I mean, it's hard, nothing goes down. You're really sleeping like on the floor. It's quite extraordinary. Then we also had a massage which none of us will ever forget three days later. That's, that's nothing to do with cultural diplomacy. <laughs> um, the hall that they wanted us to play in, where their orchestra played, had 400 seats. Again, I said, we're not coming all the way here to play for 400 people. So we looked at stadiums for 50,000 people, for 15,000. We eventually chose, after seeing seven or eight places, and they had all these places. And of course, being the kind of government they are, it wasn't a question of whether it would be available. <laughs> they just moved the people out. <laughs> so we chose a theater, which was a theater, which is not for a concert, so they had no shell. You know what I mean, an acoustic shell for the orchestra. So I said, this was October. I didn't tell you that the, the reason I pursued it is that we were, by, again by coincidence, going to China on a tour. We were finishing in Beijing. And we had three days spare before we came back, so I could fit Pyongyang in at the end of the tour. And this, you could not have planned it any better. And the reason, this is very funny, again, now that we were cultural diplomacy, we were supposed to go to Guangzhou, which is the old canton and play there, and then take the plane back from Hong Kong. But we didn't go to Guangzhou because my staff, when they went to check it out, found the toilets were not <laughs> acceptable to the musicians because there were squat toilets. 
and see if the women won't do this. So we had no the hotels and the hall, this new hall, didn't have regular toilets. Anyway, so we decided not to go to Guangzhou. We were coming back, talk about diplomacy. What we insulted year? the Chinese. I'm sorry? What year is this? 2008. <laughs> it's not changed yet. I'd love to go to the Shanghai Expo and see what's changed then. Anyhow, so we had this time available to us. This was October. We said, you have to build the shell. And they didn't know what I was talking about. These were bureaucrats. <clears throat> so I said, you must have an acoustics department at your engineering faculty. Ask them for them to come and see us. In the meantime, we went out to see all the other things, the hotels, had lunch in different places. Uh, I took them out for dinner that night, the second night. And I remember we ordered a bottle of, uh, ordered a scotch, and they don't serve scotch, they serve bottles of scotch. And it cost them like $300 in exchange to get it. We met with the engineering department the next morning at 9. They knew exactly what I was talking about. We told them what size of stage we needed, how high the thing should be. And I'm not an engineer or an acoustician, but I had some idea. And they said they would look after it. So we went through the three or four days like that came back and then I had the biggest problem that I had faced in this whole thing is how do we get the people there and back and eight tons of equipment, instruments, wardrobes, this is the end of the tour. After that we had to come home to New York. As you know we work on a very stringent union regulations of how many days there are that you can travel and from coming back you have to have so many days before you do the next rehearsal. And funnily enough, the person who was conducting us when we came back was Alan Gilbert, mm -hmm. our new music director, to be. And he didn't know it and we didn't know it at the time. And I asked Alan to give up a rehearsal so we could do North Korea with Lauren. So from when we came back to Beijing, I called Asiana Airlines and said, I knew the chairman, because they were the sponsors of our previous time that we'd been in Seoul, and I said, I have an interesting proposition for you, I'd like to come and see you. So he said, I'd be happy to see you the next day. We flew to Seoul, went to his office, and I asked for something that I don't ever expect to do in my life again. I asked him to lend us a 747 for three days, <laughs> at no cost. And I wasn't being completely silly because there was a certain amount of PR value and the South Koreans were very interested in the fact that we would be going there. Because whether you like it or not, they all want to come together under certain circumstances. And so he said he would think about it. And then we basically twiddled our thumbs for about six weeks while they found a plane that they could take out of service to have it. You know, they'd had to come to Beijing to pick us up, to take us there, come back, and bring us back to Seoul. And there were all kinds of other things that interfered in it. For instance, you know, was the runway long enough? Because they never had planes of that kind. They didn't have the stairs from which, <laughs> you know, you can get off a 747. And Pyongyang is not that far from Seoul. 
At one stage we thought about going across the DMZ by bus from Seoul. But we thought it would make more of an impact if we flew in with a 747. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had ideas of, you know, CNN taking the New York Philharmonic buses crossing the DMZ. I mean, all kinds of PR things came up behind. In the end we flew in, but the North Koreans allowed about 18 truckloads of electronic equipment to go across the DMZ to do satellite broadcast of our concert. Because that was one of the conditions, number of conditions I made other than having chosen the hall, well, then it would be the program we choose uh, with the day we come, uh, that we would play the national anthem we would play their national anthem. We said that we would want the American flag. The only thing they outsmarted us was their flag was bigger than ours. Yeah. <laughs> and at the last moment, I couldn't do anything about that. But they accepted it all. And you know, people like CNN and Newsweek and Time had never been there. And they were dying to go, and they came because of us. So it was kind of an achievement. And for those two or three days, it seemed like everything stopped still in Pyongyang. Uh, they spent money, which is embarrassing. Uh, I mean, the breakfast buffet they served, there were 90 journalists, there were 140 musicians and staff, about 50 patrons who helped us pay for the tour. People from South Korea that came across, They provided breakfast and lunch and dinner like you wouldn't believe. It wasn't well cooked, but the quantity and the, and the variety was, I think they must have looked up Gourmet magazine or something and copied. Because really they had no idea what they were serving. <laughs> uh, we were having spaghetti for breakfast and we <laughs> <laughs> It was so sad in a way. And every dinner was like, ten courses, and so they gave one dinner, I volunteered to give one dinner. We did chamber concerts with their people. Laura and Mazel conducted their orchestra rehearsal, completely prepared. They knew the music by memory. Uh, four of our musicians played the Mendelssohn Octet with four of their musicians. They knew it by memory, absolutely perfect. It was very impressive. We heard some of the young people playing local instruments, Korean instruments, and it brought tears to your eyes as to how beautifully this was done. Uh, are there any Koreans here? No. There's a piece that we found the first time we went in that October visit, because they also did a concert for us, a piece called Arirang, <coughs> which I didn't know about. And it turns out that this is like a national anthem or a folk tune that both sides of the border is, everybody grows up. And when I came back and I mentioned it to some of our Korean musicians, they all could sing it. So we made a version of it. And if you look at the videotape of the concert, which is available for 1999 on Amazon, <laughs> uh, you see we did that as a third encore. And until then, the audience that was there 
and this is really the point of the diplomacy, if you want, is that it was all very friendly with the people we were dealing with. The audience, we had no idea who they were, except I said, all our people were there, I want the entire diplomatic corps to be there. Because the diplomatic corps in Pyongyang is completely different from what you would imagine elsewhere. So, you know, the New York Philharmonic not only played for the North Koreans, we played for the Iranian ambassador, the Cuban ambassador, the Syrian ambassador, etc. <coughs> and when you look at the faces of the North Koreans who were there, they didn't know how to behave. I don't mean in terms of concert etiquette. They didn't know how interested they should look. Would they be criticized? Was somebody going to report them for enjoying it too much? They were very stiff. Until we did Ariram, and then you see people's whole faces change. It was really quite touching. I couldn't see it. I was in the audience, of course. But I saw it on the TV afterwards. And when it finished, and people started to come out, the, the, the Koreans were still standing there, or the audience was still standing. And the musicians, as they do after the end of a concert, they're packing their instruments and cleaning their instruments and so on. And I don't know who started waving, but somebody waved, I think maybe from the orchestra, I would think, rather than the Koreans. Must have sort of done this to say goodbye to them. And then the audience started waving back. That was a special moment. And uh, you know, when people say, "Did anything change?" You paid for the, you played for the uh, elite. And I said, "Of course, we played for the elite. That's what I want to play for. If you're not going to change their minds, you're not going to change anybody else's mind." And I think there was a moment after that that I felt that something could happen with North Korea. I wasn't thinking of it happening very quickly, <coughs> but that it would be a start. Uh, as I said, then he conducted in Russia in 1959. The war didn't come down until 30 years later. So I didn't expect something to happen overnight. And no figure, they're completely cut off. When you say there's no phone, there's no internet, there's no news from outside, they have nothing. Uh, the people don't know what to do on the day off unless the state tells them what to do. Uh, this, uh, we don't have an embassy, but our diplomacy is done through the Swedish <coughs> ambassador. And at dinner one night he told me, that the first time he was there, there was a Swedish national holiday, so they didn't open the embassy. And the Koreans who worked for them, the North Koreans, they didn't know what to do, because there was nothing programmed for them. They couldn't come to work. If they were home, they didn't know where to go. It's that kind of, you know, uh, Orwellian existence that they have. There's no question. And we kind of expected something might improve. We invited them to come here. They were very excited with the idea of their orchestra coming to play in America and to go to England. And it never happened. And then, of course, you know, in the last year, things have got worse. But I think the people there will remember it. I know that our concert was televised. And of course, they have one station, and everything is a loop. And when you're standing in the airport or the hotel lobby, you only see one thing the dear leader talking like Hitler, and 
parades of armies and trucks and all that. <coughs> but I'm told that our concert was on the same basis rebroadcast throughout the country for some weeks later because the uh, di diplomats who were there, some came through here and mentioned that this had happened, that they'd been traveling and they saw this concert being broadcast. So you took 80 journalists. 90. 90 journalists. Yeah. All American? No. From all over the world. Uh, the funny thing is there were a lot of South Koreans there. The South Korean uh, Moonwa Broadcasting System broadcast our concert live in South Korea. And they were able to bring all their equipment across. And I think that they paid off the people at the borders and so on to arrange this to happen. Um, and what those 90 journalists did was to turn it into a live event for the rest of the world mm -hmm. too. Not simply the concert, but the, the adventure of the concert as well. Because I can, I can remember sitting in a cab in New York listening to uh, a journalist with the cab driver and thinking amongst other things, God, how the hell did you pull that off? But I was, I was also thinking about the resonance of it, just from the point of view of um, not <coughs> of, of what it meant um, around the world as well as in North <coughs> Korea. Um, I Let can't me think just of add parallel. to that for a minute because what I did not tell you also, because all these things are coming back. When we arranged the plane from Asiana, one of the th and Munwa Broadcasting to come with the equipment. That allowed us to televise it, not only in South Korea, but elsewhere. Was they said, but we want you to do a concert in Seoul. And again, under our union agreement, we didn't have that day. So I said, the only way we can do it is, I think our concert was Tuesday night. I said, we can fly to Seoul. By the way, it's from Pyongyang to Seoul. Even though this was all approved by both governments, you couldn't fly straight down across the DMZ. You had to go out to the sea and come back like that. I said, we're coming there in the morning. If you want, we can play an afternoon concert, but that night we have to leave for New York. So they arranged a Wednesday afternoon, one o'clock concert. And I said, I don't know who's going to come. It was packed. And was, again, one of the most heartwarming things is the applause that the public gave the orchestra at the start of the concert. It was a real thank you. Everybody in the country knew this had happened. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and it sounds as if beyond, as it were, their general blessing, the State Department was fairly passive in this process. Mm. In other words, th this was um, uh, something that they sort of contemplated thought was broadly a good thing, and then good luck. Is that it, or is, was there more to it than that? Well, remember who was the president, and who was the vice president at that time. And although talks were going on, it was not, I would say, necessarily blessed by Mr. Cheney, and this is, I'm just talking as an individual. But it was obvious that they were not going to be front and center in approving this. <clears throat> Christopher Hill was supposed to be at the press conference announcing it. 
which is, I think, on a Tuesday morning, on the Monday night, he gave an interview talking very positively about this, which was in the New York Times that Tuesday morning of our press conference, and he didn't show up. Wow. Okay? He, could, he couldn't come. And nobody of any significance came to the concert. And people said, well, what's hap what happens if the dear leader comes and the whole audience stands up? So we decided to preempt that by not having the orchestra out on the stage. And that they would all go out together, stand up, play the anthem, so that we didn't get into that kind of political problem. The only people who were of, I would say, significance, and I'm trying to th remember his name, but he was the Minister of De Defense at the time of Clinton, and was the Minister, the Secretary yep. for Defense. And he was in Seoul, and he was allowed to drive across. But that was what I would call the ranking diplomatic American there. That's it. Uh, no, it was it was tough from that standpoint. And as a result, uh, I don't know who was there from the North Korean side. I sat next to the president of their Politburo, of the Central Committee who was an uncle of Kim Jong-il. How powerful he is, I don't know, but that's whom they sent. Yes? Do you think that would have changed much if, if higher-ranking people had been there? I mean, From America? Either side. I mean, I know we... Sure. Well, you know, it's a standoff. It's a question of who blinks first. If Condoleezza Rice had come, would their minister of foreign affairs come? I don't know. Well, who was going to take the chance unless they sat across the table and decided? So I knew that wouldn't happen. <coughs> I kind of hoped that Christopher would come and his counterpart, who was the deputy minister of foreign affairs, a very urbane gentleman that, you know, I mean, I'm an orchestra administrator. He had a three-hour lunch with me. This is unheard of that this would happen but he didn't come to the concert. I think in October, they were hoping that something more would come of it, and then in that time, probably the talks didn't go as well, so it was too late to cancel the concert. Listening to you, uh, fascinating story. It sounds like you uh, embrace this challenging executive enterprise in a, in a fog and a lot of mixed and unclear signals from the government and other people around you. And when you talk about the musicians and uh, the union issues related to the logistics, one doesn't get the sense that the musicians embraced it as if they were on any diplomatic mission. Is that right, wrong? How did no, they No, that's not true. Look, it's one thing to say that <coughs> when you do something with a whole orchestra, that there are certain protocols and conditions that have to be met. Beyond that, they didn't have to go and play chamber music, they didn't have to go into the universities and um, do master classes. Mm -hmm. They did all that, as much as we wanted. Uh, they were concerned about going, not from a security standpoint, 
or even a political standpoint, except to say, are we blessing their government? And they were concerned that the New York Philharmonic as an institution, not as individuals, were blessing something that was obviously so bad. And that's why I asked Christopher Hill to come and talk, because I wasn't sure either. Right. I said, is this going to do some good? He said, it can't do any harm, essentially. <laughs> And our musicians were very happy to go. That was an unusual thing. Look, a number of them tried to go out of the hotel to go jogging and were told to come back. You know, <laughs> Somebody tried to buy something and they said, no, you can't do that. You know, but they behaved themselves. They didn't want to be left behind. Our <laughs> Korean musicians, <laughs> we had nine Korean musicians, and that's one of the conditions I met uh, made was that they're not going to stop the South Koreans from coming. I said, if everybody doesn't come, the Philharmonic doesn't come. And again, they didn't disagree with any conditions we made. So what recommendations would you give to another group that might be invited to a place like that someday? Don't make how, what would you yeah, do? but don't make yourself a political pawn. You're going there for one reason, which is to make music, which is what we did. That's why playing something like an Arirang was important. We played American in Paris of Gershwin. We didn't play their music. I mean, I heard some really terrible stuff that they write there. You know, the dear leader rides a white horse kind of music. <laughs> That's it. That was really the title of one of the songs they played. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you don't want to do. I made sure that our patrons were warned not to go on these trips and lay flowers at the tomb, etc. They tried it, by the way, in the buses that, of course they're going to try it. But you know, we went through that. Uh, I mean, I was not with the New York Philharmonic when Eastern Europe was communist, but I was with the Montreal Symphony, and we went on tours with them to Russia and to East Germany and Prague and so on. And that was also diplomatic. I can tell you a little story about that. This is kind of interesting. This is the Montreal Symphony. I was not running it at the time, I was on the board, <coughs> and we were doing a tour of Western Europe, ending up at the Prague Festival in 1976, and you know, the conductor was Raphael Frubeck de Burgos, our soloist was Maureen Forrester, a great Canadian mezzo-soprano, and we were doing two concerts in the Smetana Hall, and we arrived for the concert, and we, this was the last two concerts we played in Paris and London and so on at the end of and we were not prepared for the kind of reaction we got from the public. I mean, it was huge. And the musicians were looking at each other and saying, did we play that well? <laughs> yeah, this is the Montreal Symphony. This is not... And the second night was the same. And I talked to the Canadian ambassador and I said, what's going on? And he didn't know either. He was quite shocked. It turned out the night before us, the Leningrad Symphony had played there. And apparently there was a kind of underground boycott of that concert by the Czechs. And they were made to go and made to applaud. And they did that for fright and so on. And they were polite 
but they showed their demonstration politically by applauding for the Canadian Orchestra. And this is what, how could they be criticized for that by their people? So these things happen. What's your sense of, uh, you mentioned that part of the reaction of the State Department was because of who the administration was at the time. What's your sense of whether the world of cultural diplomacy is changing at all in this administration? Well, I voted for Obama. I think in many areas we had great hopes for him, and certainly in this area, and they're not coming through as I would have liked for them to have come through. And I don't say that just because of our mishap with Cuba. What, people, uh, I don't know whether they'll follow that. We, again, just like North Korea, we had a contact with the Cuban diplomatic mission in Washington. Who thought it would be a good idea, again, the New York Philharmonic to go and play in Havana? And we had some meetings with them, and we went to look it over, to go and play a concert there. The fact that, again, four or five of us were going was reported in the New York Times. We arrived there, we were treated very well, we arranged the time to go last October, end of October. And again, it was a question of how does one get there, how do you finance it, etc. And we were told that we would get, we have to get permission from the government to go there, which we thought we would get. But there was a catch. In order to go there, I asked our patrons and people who support the New York Philharmonic to each give us $10,000 and 150 people said they would do that, to go with us on a plane to Havana because it would be their chance of getting there. And again we arranged a plane from United Airlines and when we filled out the paperwork we knew that there was a clause in the paperwork that said you can go for certain reasons sports team, religious reasons, educational reasons, cultural reasons. So the orchestra and the staff of the orchestra were perfectly legal to go there, but the people who paid were not allowed to go. And the government, our government would not back down or change the rules for that to happen. Now if I'd raised the money separately, but you know for us to raise a million and a half dollars, for three days in Havana doesn't make sense. So we, we cancelled our trip. But Jazz and Lincoln Center is going because they're a smaller group. No, they're trying to go. Well, that's yes, okay. But yes, we're, try we're, we're trying to go. We're trying to uh, navigate that. Sorry, I understand that, like, about the money and, and how that's a good way to raise it, but doesn't that seem sort of counter, like, to the like to bring all of these patrons over to Cuba, doesn't that seem a little bit counter, like the point of, of going and... I don't, I don't, follow I don't understand, like, how, like I think it makes sense, I guess it makes sense to me, right, like why the government would allow people to go like for artistic reasons but wouldn't have allowed the ones who paid, who were basically like funding it. And I, I guess it, you have to get the money from somewhere, right? And right. so it's hard, I guess, if you don't have it. Which, Makes sense in the nonprofit stuff, but I just don't understand if it's 
if we're looking through like cultural diplomacy, it seems like, I don't know, it doesn't fit for some reason to me, like why you would bring a whole bunch of people who really just want to go like tour, like but they're supporters of us, they want to see their orchestra perform. When we went to North Korea, we had 50 people who had paid for it to come with us to experience it. Listen, this is the whole basis of support of the arts in this country, in the West. Sure, and that makes sense in this country. I don't know, I just... Okay. Yeah, Thomas. There's obviously huge costs whenever you and your orchestra go anywhere. So I wonder if you could talk about how you choose where you go and if the cultural impact is always weighed in and, and kind of how you decide of China versus Paris or Cuba versus London. Um, the New York Philharmonic is in a slightly different position than many other orchestras in that we have a need, uh, not a psychological need, but a commercial and economic need to travel and to play outside of New York because when you have an orchestra that you're paying for 52 weeks, you can't sell tickets for every, everything here and you have to go and do something elsewhere. Uh, we have generally gone to places where we think uh, there is a presenter and a group of people who want us to perform. So going to London every two or three years or Paris is not difficult just as major orchestras come to New York to perform. Uh, China and Japan are emerging, not Japan now, but we first went to Japan in 1961. It was an emerging market. Uh, in those days, orchestras traveled because it was made economic sense, because you made recordings, you wanted to sell recordings, you wanted to have a physical presence. That's why the Montreal Symphony, which when it got into the recording business in the early 1980s, started traveling, and people used to come and buy tickets for us, and we became a hot property because our recordings were doing so well. Nowadays, it's not recordings anymore. Now it's a question of who wants us, and what are the interesting places you can go to to present a face of America today that in many parts of the world is not at the top, okay? We're being heavily criticized in many places. We went to Hanoi last year, you know? I had no idea how the Vietnamese would receive an American institution. But just for clarity, you went to Hanoi as a, as a normal touring proposition? I mean, what are the, aren't the, is there the same set of economics that would have taken you to Japan, took you to Hanoi? No. I was going to say, Sorry. Hanoi came into thing because I thought this is a good place from a diplomatic standpoint to go and say, not exactly mea culpa, it's been many years, but still no American orchestras really performed there. I don't know if smaller groups have been there. But we were in Japan, we were in Korea, we were going to Bangkok and Singapore. We said, well, Hanoi is on the way. So we again contacted our embassy there. There's a lovely opera house. And the Vietnamese government agreed to pay for everything except a fee. So I was out two fees, but our sponsor, our global sponsor is Credit Suisse, which is in Hanoi and Vietnam is an extremely important business site for them. So they said they would support us. 
So it made that thing possible. And I have to say, it was kind of extraordinary for us and the musicians to play for this group of people. And we televised the concert again throughout the country. And we had two screens outside the opera house where our concert was taking place. And people were lined up outside. The, they're all on their motorcycles now and, and scooters. And they would drive around the circle and they'd stop and hundreds of people would be watching our concert. It was, I think it was a good manifestation of American culture and relationship. I think that helps with trade and a general sense of what we are all about. In other words, you have prioritized cultural diplomacy. And as you scan the horizon as a, a senior arts administrator, you are looking for opportunities to pursue that agenda. There is in the background a passive, occasionally hostile, occasionally benign, but basically hostile, uh, basically passive um, uh, Department of State with behind it all the sanctions of the Treasury, etc. That's a very different model, as it were, it's not quite a model, from um, a, uh, a national government that has uh, decided that, you know, like Goethe Institute or something else, that there are, that there are forms of soft diplomacy that it will aggressively pursue, if that's not an oxymoron, um, uh, with some <coughs> sort of um, diplomatic end in sight. So I guess, I mean, just to build on that question, I guess, uh, yeah, what, how, you know, how far behind the game are, are we here in America in terms of strategic cultural diplomacy? I think cultural diplomacy, the way I would have liked to have seen it, died in this country many years ago. I remember when I was a student in London in the 50s, Louis Armstrong came on a tour that had taken him through Africa, <coughs> and I think he ended up with eight nights of concerts in Wembley, not the big soccer stadium, but the other one next to it. Um, and the more diligent students here will have read that story because there's a book called Satchmo Blows Up the World. Oh, that was right? on their reading list, yeah, which is an and account of I was of that. there for three of those concerts as a student. We stood up and listened to it. This was sponsored by the State Department. And the State Department used to sponsor tours of orchestras. Um, whether they do tours of military bands at this stage, I can't answer. But if they tried to do that, I think that, that would sort of blow up in their faces because that's exactly the wrong message to send today in the world. Uh, I think that our country's government, in trying to show its, the proper side of its face, has left it very much to individuals like us, like them, to go and do that to represent this country. Let me give you an example. Last night when I got home, I was watching the PBS News, and there was a half-hour documentary uh, on the McNeil Lehrer Report on the Expo in Shanghai. And I knew it was coming, and the reason I was interested in it is because in a month's time, we go into Central Park to do a concert every year, as many of you know. And this year, our first concert is going to be shared with the Shanghai Symphony. The Chinese government and Shanghai city in particular are sending their orchestra here to promote Shanghai 2010, the expo that they're doing there, which is a world class one exhibition. And they're prepared to spend the money to do it. And the, one of the things that came out in this documentary, 
not about us, but what's going on there that every country in the world has got pavilions that are showing their uh, wares and what they can do. The lady who's running the Australian pavilion says, of course we'd be the, we do $80 billion of trade with China. It would be an insult to people if we didn't do this. A month ago there was an article in the New York Times, because this expo opened on May 1st, saying that Hillary Clinton had to privately raise $60 million for the American Pavilion at Expo. There's no government involvement. So even with a country that essentially today owns America because of the debt they have, we couldn't go there to do that, let alone sending the New York Philharmonic or somebody like that to perform, to show the thing. That's what's lacking in our forethought and thinking. Have you ever received funding from the government for any of your travel? Ever, yes. I mean, that's why I say we used to get it all the time. Until I would say the early 70s. Not since then. Not a cent. Terry. Any case in North Korea? Did they pay anything for the trip? Was it all private? Who, the North Koreans? The North Koreans gave us the hotels. The rest of it was paid by us. Hotels are all the local things. You know, they provided the food, the hall, etc. So this is essentially paid for by private American donors? And a large portion by a Japanese lady. Mm -hmm. And to talk about the diplomacy side, when we were planning this, we were concerned about what the South Korean reaction would be since we play there a lot. And as I said, they were thrilled and delighted. But the Japanese didn't forgive us. We got bad press. NHK was the only major television network that did not present or report on our trip. And when we went there last year, which was a year and a half later, we had some pointed questions by the Japanese press, which is very strange and very hypocritical. I mean. I don't want to get into it, but you should read about Japan and Korea in the last century. Brent. Did the North Korean government achieve their agenda? What's your sense of that? I don't know what their agenda was. I came out of it and I said privately, I said, I don't think they scored any brownie points because they were laughed at by the press for all the things they did. You know, people have been told that people are starving and that, that there's, it's cold. All our rooms at the hotels were taped up and they were 95 degrees. They overheated everything. This, this thousand room hotel, they had floors and floors completely empty. They wouldn't let anybody else live there. All the other foreigners who were there doing business were put into other hotels than the ones we were in. And all the press, I mean, Christian Amanpour and the Times of London, all those people Notice that, so I don't think they got anything good out of it. The deputy foreign minister that I said that I had lunch with, I asked him the first time why it was important for them to have us. And without actually saying it in so many words, he said, if you look at the traffic on our roads, there's hardly any, and that the reason is not because we don't have cars, we don't have any gas, we don't have the money to buy the gas. We want to, let me give you another little factoid. 
North Korea had, had all kinds of uh, factories throughout the country until the Soviet Empire collapsed. Because until then, Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union bought a lot of their uh, small goods from factories in North Korea. Suddenly they were buying it from Western Europe and from America. China was, of course, expanding as it let down its guard. Suddenly North Korean industry had nothing to do, so they wanted to become suppliers to Walmart, is how he put it. And obviously they didn't survive, didn't succeed, because whatever they were trying to do to put their face forward, politically or militaristically, they were stymied. And who knows what they're thinking as to why that happened. But I don't think they achieved it at all. Who do you look at? I mean, it sounds like we look at lots of countries enviously, but who do you think, which countries are skilled in this territory today? North Korea? No, no, no. Which countries, which, uh, mostly Western, I guess, countries, not exclusively, which countries uh, have sophisticated um, cultural diplomacy agendas? Oh. Well, when I was in Cuba, in Havana, as I say, three of us or four of us going from New York makes that New York Times, right? At the same time I was in Havana, the Royal, Royal Ballet Bound. of London was there for five performances and nobody reported on it. The English government, the British Council helped them go there. I mean, that is happening. You know, I, I would love to find out how many cultural organizations are going to Shanghai from European countries to perform there during Expo. I mean, I said we were not invited. That's not entirely true. There was an organization set up two or three years ago to try and do this in America. The old violinist called Daniel Heifetz who was putting something together. <clears throat> and I said, well, let me know if you raise the money for it. I said, I don't think I can raise the money to go to Shanghai to do this. It's very expensive. And they couldn't do it. So America not only was not going to have a pavilion until Hillary got involved, <coughs> there was certainly no cultural representation. And I think it, this, this is so important. <coughs> it, it didn't just happen recently. I mean, people have been touting their artistic wares for centuries. And either you said armies, food, or culture. You choose. Um, I, I, one, other, one other question is, if you look at, as we look at sort of cultural diplomacy today, part of the debate is also about cultural exchange. It's not one way, it's two way. And uh, I'm wondering what you think um, the US record is like in that territory too. Certainly, if you spend much time working on the visas of individual artists, which I'm sure you do as well as we do, um, and jazz musicians are probably not the best documented of musicians a lot of the time, um, the, um, uh, our good intentions in cultural exchange are often thwarted by, the, um, thwarted by the administration knowingly or unknowingly because of the extent to which we uh, 
whether they're tax issues or whether they're permit issues, are these days horrendous to navigate. Um, what's your sense of the? What's your sense of how important that two-way street is, and uh, what's your? How difficult is that for for you guys, just as a practicality? When we engage at the New York Philharmonic artists from abroad, one of the first questions we ask is does he or she have the legal right to perform in this country? And are we going to have to apply for the visa or is that person or their management going to do it? Furthermore, if you have a cancellation, you again look for somebody who is either in this country already or is an American because of the time it takes to get a visa. And it's not just artists, it's, it's in all walks of life that this is happening. I mean, there was one old German conductor who's been coming here for 50 years or so to conduct, and about four or five years ago, he says, I'm never coming back to America. He says, why do I need to submit myself to fingerprinting and an eye scan and all that after all these years? Don't they know who I am? <laughs> and of course they don't. <laughs> and uh, the person who's at the border doesn't care. And I'm not saying they should, but there's a certain lack of noblesse oblige on the part of our government. And some of the other countries have been saying, well, if you're going to treat us citizens like this, we're going to treat all Americans like that. So that's the last thing you want, but that is happening. What do you hope to achieve, or what do you hope happens when the New York Phil plays in a place like Hanoi, or North Korea, or... Well, it's not just those unusual places. Um, as I say, I think when we played in Dresden, and we did, we finished the first concert with Toten Verklärung of Strauss, Death and Transfiguration, I have to tell you that people walked out with tears. You think they're ever going to forget what we did for them that night? You know, that's so really what it's all about. Explain the circumstances of the composition of that piece, because that I'm was not sure I remember. what Strauss. The, the, yeah. the, wasn't that written at the eve of the uh, Second World War, just before he died, um, uh, and has been taken as his interpretation of uh, the defeat of Germany? So I, I, think, I, think, I think it was after right. the First World War. You after, right. the first after the First World War, he wrote it. Yeah, and the, you know. And Strauss was, you know, spent a lot of his time in Dresden, that's why we did it. Um, we're playing in six months' time in Georgia, in Tbilisi. <coughs> and that also, I had to ask the State Department what they thought of it. And it took them two months to answer me, whether they thought it was a good idea, whether we went there and performed or not. And we're going there in October again at the invitation of the government to perform there. And yeah, this could be an American manifestation of friendship towards the people over there. Already, from the one visit I made there, they're taking all our concert broadcasts and putting it on their airwaves. So every day you can hear music of the New York Philharmonic all through Georgia on their FM classic music stations. Now imagine, you can't do that in America, but you can do it in Georgia. <laughs> question I have is on how does it make sense for I mean a, a, a 
a largely European Western institution playing mostly non-American music with an orchestra that's international, but it's represented as uh, an American group when it travels those places that sort of the baggage it carries. Does that create sort of strange uh, feelings either the orchestra with you? Is it, is it complete sense of or I mean, it's, 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 it's a pan-national um, can it's a pan-national group in many ways, but you go as ambassadors of the United States. Is that it's an American institution? It's American financed. Uh, it's pan-national in the sense that if you had to ask uh, the Koreans or the Chinese or anything like that, or if you'd ask me what's my nationality, I'm Indian, but of course I have an American passport. But that doesn't change anything or my thinking as representing the United States. I'm not representing India. And I think that the people who are in the orchestra feel exactly that. You know, today, the nationalism aspect is quite mixed up in the sense, if you take a soccer team, for instance, today, okay, if you've got an English football team, how many Englishmen are playing in it? So when Manchester United goes to perform somewhere, you know, 30 years ago they were probably all Englishmen. Today, maybe there's less than half. It's still an English football With a non-English manager. With a non-English no, manager. Yes. Can you share anything about the uh, discussion amongst your board members prior to making the decision to go? Um, I think there were only two or three board members who, from a political standpoint, felt we shouldn't go. Political stance. Yeah. <coughs> Everybody else was in favor, and many of them came with us. And they were very proud of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about from a funding standpoint? Obviously, if I created a deficit, I would have lost my job. <laughs> no, but I mean more of going to an area that might upset funders, or I mean, do you weigh those decisions? As yeah, I mean, if I was doing something unusually wrong about it, but I think an orchestra going to play in Korea and helping to bridge the gap, I mean, I can't see that many other than the but most right-wing individuals. But I speak as somebody trying to follow in your shoes, okay? So I'm, 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 I'm trying to work out my Cuba gig. And as I'm, you know, listening very intentively, I'm, I'm thinking of all these things. I'm thinking of the ghastly prospect of Fidel Castro coming out and hugging Winton with the world's press, etc. And I, you know, I've, I've thought through a lot of these things. Um, right. But, but you're, you know, you, you've, um, you've, uh, as it were, you know, alerted me to a mental list of a few more I need to be thinking about. Um, it is high risk. There's no question that it's high risk. There's force majeure. There's, you know, there's all sorts of things that could just happen and leave you high and dry. The risks associated with, as it were, entre you know, entrepreneurialism, and you don't have, as it were, the government mandate. We have a program that we do run under a grant from the State Department called um, uh, American Musicians Abroad, and we tour small jazz groups to obscure parts of the world. And I know if something goes wrong, I've got the whole paraphernalia of the State Department to you know, get my guy out of Uzbekistan, all the rest of it. You're, uh, but, but if we did Cuba, and uh, as you did Korea, actually, you're a long way out. You know, and you're leading with your chin, or whatever the appropriate metaphor is. So you must be putting a very, very high value on this. 
because the you know there is a, clearly there are the re rewards, there are institutional rewards of getting it right, as well as the rewards in terms of larger cultural diplomacy. It's brand building and it's friend building and all the rest of it. But it is very high risk, um, uh, and if you were at all risk averse, you would not even be taking the phone call when you saw the thing from, uh, you know, uh, fr when you saw the original invitation, you'd be scrunching it up and ho hoping nobody else had seen it. So I'm just wondering, as it were, you know. Am I right in thinking you've got to have a strong appetite for risk and a fairly strong nerve to, to, to go into this territory? Well, when you put it that way, I suppose so. But, you know, all the things we have done, including before my time, we have not run into any kind of embarrassing situation in that regard. <coughs> As I say, we looked at Korea and looked at South Korea and Japan specifically. <coughs> and I called our ambassador in Japan and I called the man who's been running our tours there for years. And they both said it will not be well received in Japan that you're going. Right. So you, you, and you we took read the that chance, in advance. Yes. And we said, I think they're wrong. I could have rubbed their noses in it, but of course I didn't. And we went, and 18 months later, we were back in Japan on tour. We did concerts there, and there was no fallback on it at all, except some questions at a press conference. But not really that difficult. Other than that, frankly, it, you know, I've not had any kind of concern about it. As I say, we were careful in Korea not to be caught in a propaganda mm. net. And I think that we would have had the same thing in Cuba to a certain mm. extent, not to get caught in a propaganda net. In fact, one of the things I'd, I was hoping if we'd gone is to have some Cuban musicians come and play some Absolutely. Cuban music with us yep. Yep. and say, this is about music and you can hug us as much as you want. <laughs> yep, I've, I've ticked that box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Other questions? I'm going to pull, yes. Jerry, again. I'm sorry? Does the State Department have to give you official permission? Oh my God, when yes. You, when you say, you, when you tell the State Department you're thinking about going to North Korea, if they say no, does that... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There is a law called trading with the enemy. And that's what we had to apply to and got the approval. Because we had support of the State Department, they navigated their way through this. And is that, that's Treasury as well? That's like Treasury as well. Yeah. That's, you know, our OFAC application yeah. is essentially a trading with the enemy. That's what Cuba is. What, what Imagine. Georgia, the State Department just, no, Georgia, I didn't really need any kind of legal <coughs> approval to go there. I mean, anybody can travel there. But I just didn't want to create any kind of embarrassing situation for our government because of the problems between Georgia and, and Russia of the last couple of years over South Ossetia and what was going on then with NATO and Poland, etc. There was all that stuff. And I had a long meeting with the Under Secretary of State to go over this. And they said they had, had many meetings about it and they thought it was a good idea. Other than that, I would not have undertaken it. That's being careful, if you like. I guess my last question is, Cuba aside, what else do you have up your sleeve or what do you have your eye on? We're going to New Jersey next year. <laughs> <laughs> God, you're brave. <laughs> Look, I don't think that's... that'll top it all. Yeah. <laughs> no, it would be nice to go to the Middle East. We were in Abu Dhabi 
last October, but that's kind of... Tehran? Well, yeah, it would be nice to go to Tehran and Baghdad and those places. But, you know, we're not looking to go there, mm. but at some stage it would be a kind of saying, proving that things are good now, if you were to go there. But I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. I'd like to take the orchestra back to India, but that's not a political situation, that's a practical situation. I'd like to take the JLCO there as well. Yeah. Um, silly question, but how did you transport like a Steinway? <laughs> we don't. Okay. We don't. We have a lot of equipment. Pianos we don't take. That's the one thing we don't. But we do take harpsichords with us mm -hmm. and all the basses and so on. And that's part of the logistics that we have uh, enormous problems with. When we travel in Asia especially, uh, cargo planes, we have to have rather large cargo planes and they don't fly between cities every day. So if you're going, Hanoi was a problem. Mm -hmm. We couldn't take a piece with a lot of percussion. We played Beethoven and Mozart there, so most of the musicians carry their things with them. And we played a piano concerto there with Emmanuel Axe. And we went and tried out the piano six months before. And then had a, a Steinway tuner from Shanghai come down at our expense to work on it so that Manny could play it. A few things there. Otherwise, it's, we take all our own things. Why yes? Is, sorry, uh, why is India with a Bombay is the only place that you can play concerts where there's a public and there's a hall and the hall is only 1200 seats and so logistically again how do you get the instruments for us to get instruments <coughs> to Mumbai takes a charter cargo plane which is hundreds of thousands of dollars I mean when we were now in Singapore the next stop was supposed to be Bombay and then Abu Dhabi and we had to bypass Bombay because we couldn't get the instruments there. Because the day we were traveling, there was no cargo flight. Europe is easier because you can fly the instruments to Frankfurt or Amsterdam and then you bust them all around, or track them rather. Practical things like that. And so often you say, well, you play a concert here, then you play a concert there. You can certainly get the passengers there in a couple of hours. But you know, you might have to go to three borders in order to get from point A to B. And even though there's a community, European community, there are still borders to cross. Those are logistical problems. Any other questions? I've got one more. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe everyone wants a break. Um, it's okay. Can you talk, both of you probably, I mean, instrumental music without any lyrics, seems like a pretty harmless thing to, to tour around. Oh my God. Easy. You may not make political statements. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what, you know, what are your thoughts on visual art, theater, kind of the other parts of the, the canon of our culture and, and how you see that as touring the globe? And it's Theater is not necessarily political. You can, you can do Bertolt Brecht and say it's political or it's not, but I don't see any problems there. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, go, go the go. Shanghai Symphony wanted to play 
a Chinese piece in Central Park. And I said, I don't have a political problem, but it's a crappy piece of music. You shouldn't do that. Uh, well, first of all, I think your premise is wrong. Um, if you take jazz and you tour jazz, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that, you know, jazz has been picked up with both formally by the State Department and generally encouraged is the history of the music is wrapped up in um, a whole set of issues around uh, race and class and um, uh, heterogeneity and also that jazz itself has in it very powerful metaphors, metaphors about the relationship between the collective and the individual, metaphors about the relationship between innovation and tradition, metaphors uh, in it about um, uh, uh, listening and playing, and those uh, metaphors about um, uh, metaphors that can be easily translated into a sort of um, a conceit for um, what makes democratic societies work. It's a highly democratic music, and the sort of rules that you need are also the sort of rules that you need for people to get along um, uh, harmoniously in open societies. So I think that the arguments behind uh, jazz are often very powerful, polemical ones. So I wouldn't say that, uh, and clearly, lots of music from Beethoven to, to Strauss to whatever else has all sorts of connotations and symbolism. Um, uh, so I don't think it's the case that music is, as it were, anodyne or depoliticized in any way. Um, uh, also, but, I, but I, on the visual arts front, um, uh, visual arts are pretty powerful, but also powerfully used in cultural diplomacy in all sorts of ways. And although America doesn't, um, many European countries invest heavily in supporting touring infrastructure around exhibitions because those exhibitions also you know, represent sets of values that they want to see, as it were, associated with them. Um, um, and you know, there are lots of challenges that currently, just to take you know, the Guggenheim building in, the, the Guggenheim, uh, building in Abu Dhabi, w what place is figurative art going to have in that complex in a society where there are a set of mores uh, Islamic um, uh, uh, mores around uh, uh, non-representational art. And so there's a, you know, there are a lot of interesting issues to be worked through there. Um, what, what I think all that sort of cultural diplomacy requires, whether it's as, as, as entrepreneurially or under the wing of the government, is a sort of nuanced understanding of how far you can push it and it still stick. In other words, if you don't push it all, there's no point. Uh, you're not achieving any purpose. If you push too far, you'll get spat out. So how far, how far, as it were, do you push you know, your values and, uh, and what it is that you're trying to articulate uh, without it, as it were, causing so much offense that it's, it's, it's pushed back? And that's, you know, that's the big challenge, I think, that a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of arms of soft diplomacy have. And that's the line that they're always trying to, trying to, um, the line they're always trying to walk. You know, when I was growing up in India, the American government had an organization, which I don't know if it still exists, it was called the United States Information Service. Yes, I we used to go to the Bombay branch and read U.S. magazines at that time, like Life and Look and so on, get recordings of American music, jazz and classical music. Uh, that, I don't know if it still exists, but certainly there's the Goethe Institute that does that for German culture. There's the Alliance Francaise, which is all over the world. Um, and as I understand it, the Indian government is currently planning a whole network of similar 
um, uh, cultural uh, posts. Is that correct? Have, do you, you know, are you aware that of that? To me. I looked into that. The only thing I know of, it's called the Nehru Institute, and there's one in London, and they're thinking about opening one in, in Washington. Well, I, those are the only two I, I know about. I was, just, I was at the conference in Salzburg, and um, the Indian delegate there, um, in a conversation similar to this, you know, announced it as one of the initiatives that was, but I, you know, who knows whether it's a whether it's a sort of a proposal or a mandate. Well, many years ago, I tried to create. This was in the mid '80s, a kind of a tour of Indian culture, of music and dance, and I went and to scout out what was, who were the great dancers and the young people, and the followers of Ravi Shankar and so on. And I put a troop together, but I couldn't get any support from the Indian government at the time to help. I think that's too bad, because it would have helped a lot towards spreading of culture on that basis, and of the Indian sort of image at a time when it needed it in the 80s. Saren, I'm extremely grateful to you, and so is everybody else. Thank you very much. What is cultural diplomacy? What is it? We've used this term. It trips off your tongue. What is it? What's it for? What is cultural diplomacy? It's about creating bridges through culture. Okay, go on. Conflict solving and conflict prevention through cultural exchange. Okay. I think it's a soft instrument for uh, for uh, a soft instrument to kind of initiate some kind of uh, diplomatic conversation uh, about something that might actually be more um, serious, technical. But surely there is some continuum. And at one end, there is, as it were, one end there's war, for the sake of argument. Then one step down from war, there is aggressive diplomacy around specific issues. But when you are negotiating on specific issues between uh, political elites, both those political elites are looking over their shoulder at what the climate of opinion is. No matter what the circumstance, no matter whether they're democratically elected governments or they're, they're um, uh, uh, they're hereditary, um, they're always looking for legitimacy in, in one form or another in terms of the, uh, the constituency that's standing behind them. And in those negotiations, the climate of opinion and the general disposition of that population towards the country is, uh, is going to affect the nature of those negotiations. If you look at the origins of contemporary cultural diplomacy, they come from Nazi Germany's investment in relationships, particularly in, or if you look at American cultural diplomacy, uh, in Central and South America um, during the, well, basically during the Weimar Republic, and America realizing that um, they were winning the hearts and minds of Central South America and thinking, okay, how are we going to counteract that? What are the sorts of investments we can make in cultural uh, uh, interchange of one sort or another to try and win hearts and minds. So there's a continuum, if you like, that goes from, I'm using war as an extreme, to, uh, to um, high-level elite diplomacy to, if you like, public diplomacy. Cultural diplomacy, I see as a sort of subset of a larger box, which you might call public diplomacy, which is d diplomacy which is investing in 
uh, a set of dis uh, set of exchanges between non-political players uh, at, a, at some sort of mass level. So if you look at what the Goethe Institute does or Alliance Francaise, only part of it is about high culture. Some of it's about you know subsidizing language tuition. Some of it's about um, uh, you know. Um, uh, get, just getting newspapers from your country into, into uh, circulation in, 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 the, uh, in the country. Uh, and presumably, if you don't have infinite you know, resources, then you're also, also thinking at some level, what are the countries about whose attitudes towards us we most care about for one reason or another? So you tend, um, you know, all other things being equal, to focus your cultural diplomacy efforts on those countries whose attitudes towards you matter most in terms of the geopolitics of where you are. The general mandate at some level is to try and humanize the perception of American society and its values and its um, cultural artifacts uh, and its economy in the wider sense uh, in the eyes of you know, disaffected uh, Iraqis. Uh, a very, very tough gig, uh, a long-term gig. I mean, I don't know what's long-term for him, but I mean, you know, a, a, but, you know, cultural diplomacy cannot work at a hit-and-run level. Um, it's got, it's about long, for a number of reasons, but it's about long-term, you know, uh, mechanisms for attitudinal change, which is why I would draw a distinction, I think, between the sort of exercise that Zarin did, which is a sort of... Um, high-level glam um, uh, headline, um, uh, headline grabber, um, which may or may not align with, and he was slight, clearly slightly disappointed about whether the extent to which it didn't align with, some sort of breakthrough in international negotiations. And longer-term government cultural diplomacy, which is aimed at a sort of drip, drip, drip effect, if you like, of, um, uh, of some sort of way of counteracting, either you know, um, honestly or uh, expediently counteracting the prevailing impressions of what are the values of your culture. Because clearly, um, those in turn inform what people think generally, and that in turn affects your ability to negotiate with, uh, with people because of how much give they will have, in a sense, in their negotiating stance. I mean, that's, that's my take on it, anyway. Come to in other words, whether New York Phil represents, as it were, um, you know, the all, that is, all that is best in, in uh, uh, American society is, is another point. Um, and we should come to that. But, the, but, but what we're trying to do is somehow alter. And it, it's not just about, as it were, looking for critical moments in international relations and, and, uh, and um, you know, trying to stand in front of them. It's, it's, which is why I don't think it can ever, ever be you know, an entirely private initiative. It's about long-term mechanisms for changing perceptions of a, uh, of a society, for, but for diplomatic ends, for specific diplomatic ends. Is America, is the State Department actually entirely rational in not giving a great deal of energy to cultural diplomacy writ large? given that, one, there is so much of American culture, and many people love American culture, uh, there's so much American culture out there, and two, how the hell, you know, how much money would you have to throw at it to countermand it? It's interesting, uh, I, specifically why I asked Zarin uh, about his reaction towards the current administration is that there had been a great deal of um, optimism that, um, 
uh, that um, this administration would invest heavily in cultural diplomacy as a way of countermanding, as it were, what you might call the perceptions of Bush, Bush's America. And in some ways, the mere election of, uh, of, uh, of the president altered, I think, uh, considerably, certainly my mother's for what it's worth. My mother wouldn't come and see me, you know, uh, under uh, Bush and is now prepared to get on a plane and come and see me. So, uh, and, uh, you know, that may, be, that may be typical. I think that probably is typical in, in the, just the act of regime change, I suppose, was important. But certainly, this administration doesn't appear to uh, have any appetite whatsoever for that fine-brained sort of uh, nuanced, you know, old-school cultural diplomacy. They are interested in spectacle, and um, uh, it's a bit like when um, uh, Blair was elected in 1997. Um, uh, um, I'm certainly talking to the State Department. In my last conversations with the State Department, when I was schmoozing them to make, you know, try and help you know, get our grant renewed, and I asked about what, what you know, what where cultural diplomacy was going generally within their department. Her, her um, description of what the fantasy would be of, uh, of this administration would be to have Beyonce in a large outdoor concert on the Great Wall of China. Okay? That's, I mean, I think that's interesting. I don't think it's necessarily smart, but I think it's interesting that, as it were, that would represent, um, uh, that, would, uh, that would represent, you know, uh, a manifestation of you know what is best about popular culture in America and its articulation in a high profile <coughs> in a high profile context, building bridges, etc. Um, and that's a long, long way away from the sort of you know little stuff that you know, for example, we do in you know doing master classes and workshops in um, Tashkent or something with, with twenty million. It's it's celebrity, <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh, well, it depends what you mean by culture, but yeah. But I mean, I think you know we should talk about uh, some other. But 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 America, I think, has a has a unique set of issues surrounding cultural diplomacy by virtue of the dominant position of American culture and people's defining reactions uh, toward towards that. Pluralism, I mean, just to go, <coughs> I think that an important value that America does genuinely represent and that, it, that uh, uh, it wants to export to the world is a sense of pluralism and a sense that um, uh, differing opinions can coexist amicably and productively in a society. And, um, and uh, therefore, for example, when we, when we, when we get our musicians, uh, we have two sets of criteria, by, and they've got two hoops as we, as we do auditions for them. They've got two hoops they need to jump through. The first hoop is, can they play? Have they got the chops? That's absolutely the first, first hoop. The second hoop is, uh, to what extent are they articulate um, uh, educators with enough nuance uh, to, um, uh, to be intelligent representatives of those values. That does not mean, values of pluralism, that does not mean that we, that we expect them to go out on the road, you know, touting whoever the administration is, whether it was Bush or now Obama or anything else. What we, uh, and we don't really mind if they say exactly what they think. We don't really want to know that much about what they think about politics. What we want them to do is to have enough sense not to get into um, ag aggressive political arguments and have enough um, uh, 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 
and to, and to be you know pedagogically sort of sophisticated enough to know how to teach and tell people about the music and what the music represents uh, without as it were you know um, uh, hammering home uh, a polemical agenda and that I'm sure has far more in terms of you know, if your goal is to get people to think about, aha, you know, a little aha moment, there's something about America which is, you know, uh, more interesting than we thought, then um, I'm sure it's because, I'm sure it's because representatives of American culture can talk clearly about certain values that aren't party political, about pluralism and about, you know, um, uh, the importance of individual voice and those sorts of things. So I think that there are, there are general messages about American, about the best of American values that can be encapsulated in cultural exchanges that are, that, that are not, you know, sort of short-term political. They're not about are you for or against the, the war in Iraq or issues like those. They're about more fundamental sets of uh, values in a plural democracy. Yeah? Did you send uh, uh, hip-hop artists on a tour of the third world? Uh, yeah, we have. Yeah. Are they unknown artists? Are they unknown? They're sort of mezzo-known artists. Um, they're sort of mid-level. Mid well, our, our whole program, unlike the cultural diplomacy program of the 50s and 60s, which went for the Louis Armstrongs and the Dave Brubecks and the, <coughs> and the, um, uh, you know, the people right at the peak of the profession, ours is a much more fine way. It takes competent, highly, highly skilled, but not, not very, you know, not highly famous, uh, younger, tend to be younger rather than mid or um, uh, late career musicians. I mean, what Zarin actually said is, we don't choose musicians on their merit as musicians because we have an overarching criterion, which is the practicality of getting them into the country. And it's only if they pass that hoop and think that that, that hoop, you know, actually now excludes, you know, 90% of the world's musicians. It's only if they pass that hoop that we will then consider them on their merits. That's an incredible thing to say. My sort of geopolitical point about... about I guess about hip-hop and rap, in, in, not in all forms, but in a lot of forms, is that it is, it's not an inclusive art form. It's very, it's very difficult for people of a certain generation to feel included by it. It's aggressively not intergenerational. Most, uh, most music is, 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 as it were, generationally neutral. If you, you know, you've got a Cajun band, you can get kids dancing with their grandmothers, dancing with, you know, it brings people together. Our strap line at Jazz at Lincoln Center is bring people together through swing. You try and get intergenerational rap or hip-hop <laughs> dancing. I, you see, you're laughing. I mean, now think about what that means. That means that in, in communities where there's you know, a, a lot of generational res intergenerational respect and intermingling, you're bringing something very exclusionary into that community. So what about the rest of the world? Um, you know, America seems to have unique challenges and opportunities. Go on. You could just feel it. You could just feel it. Yeah, absolutely. How much that weighed on us. And it was every time I traveled anywhere, I never said I was American. And I did a lot of traveling when I was abroad, but I never ever did I go as far as to. I, I knew people who put like maple flags on their backpacks to say they were Canadian. And like, oh my God, did I ever. I don't know. Maybe I did. Did you? This is a very important <laughs> question. You should know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> 
these are. What is the, the um, how much weight, or what is the responsibility of the State Department to preserve these? And that falls in line with the whole NEA argument, I think. But there's also the preserving the cultural um, prestige of our finances. It's not just, yeah. These are supposed to be the highest expressions, or some of the highest expressions of human um, endeavor. And um, uh, the opportunity, as it were, to provide a gateway to those, if one can, seems to me a good thing with which to be associated. Um, but the interesting thing is Zarin said nothing about audience development, no, you know, record sales, ticket sales. I mean, it was almost like. No, although he did they say something that I thought about in speech. Cuba. He did say something about which I was interesting because it was interesting hearing him because I'm going through the same process because I'm trying to take the band to Cuba in, in uh, October, so I'm going through exactly the same process. And he did say something that I, I went uh, to Cuba in August on a sort of scouting tour, and I got shown by I guess the same guys, um, uh, and I got shown a beautiful, beautiful um, auditorium, and it was a 400 seater. His 400 seater he was talking about was in Seoul, but this was in. Um, um, uh, in North Korea, but, uh, but uh, uh, this one was, it was in Havana. And my first reaction was, great, thank God, there is a beautiful space. My second reaction was, of course, who is going to see this concert? It will be, and that's what he was saying. And was, you know, the only people who will see this concert will be party apparatchiks who, um, you know, and, and their immediate families. So what is the point of raising, you know, for, in my case, not that much, about $750,000 uh, to take a band uh, to go and play to party apparatchiks in, you know, it's completely pointless. So I'm looking for large venues, even if they're crappy. I'm looking for outdoor venues. I'm looking for one, some assurance that the tickets will be distributed in a way that actually has some sort of wider impact. Um, I, want to, I, I, I want to move away from America a bit, if I may. Um, um, so America or uh, um, uh, Americans have looked to these other models like uh, Alliance Francaise, like the British Council, like um, the Goethe Institute. But a point that you made yesterday, which I think is right in the margins at the end of yesterday, which is they, um, uh, in order to do the work their magic, as it were, need to be at arm's length from government with long-term commitment to not short-term political aims. In other words, they need to be seen to have a degree of independence, not from the general values of the society that's represented. They need to celebrate those, but some distance from the short-term political concerns or financial and export-driven concerns of the, um, uh, of, of the, the administration, you know, the administration of the day. I think that the reality is that they are all moving towards a more short-term relationship. Yeah, you talked about the, uh, would you like to say a bit about your, your take on this as, as, uh, as an observer of um, the British Council? Uh, we, talked, we talked last week about contractualization. Yeah. We, talked, uh, we, we talked about the changing uh, relationships that had previously been basically trust relationships now being contractualized. And, um, and the question is, what's in the contract? Certainly, uh, what's happened in the British Council, and I think probably what's happened in the Goethe Institute and, and others, is that the relationship between the network of um, uh, cultural satellites, if you like, British Council offices, etc., and their funders, in, this, in the British case, the Foreign Office, um, has become a contractualized one. 
And so the Foreign Office is looking to the uh, British Council and basically saying, okay, value for money. Please demonstrate your value for money, okay? Now, if you're, one of the challenges of cultural diplomacy is how do you prove its worth? How do you demonstrate? If, if, the, larger, if the larger purpose is to create a backcloth of a benign disposition in a society towards a country so that it is, in its negotiations with it, uh, it has a stronger, it has a stronger negotiating position than if, if they're, you know, they're, they're generally hostile. How do you measure the impact of what you're doing? Because often it's the case that actually you'll have some sort of exchange with a, uh, a Chinese student uh, as part of a, it won't actually sort of register as, as an event until years afterwards or in some subliminal way or in some very you know, subtle, tra subtle transaction. Or in so and so we have this. When we fill in our grant to the State Department to try and get our next $1.7 million from them, we can say, they always make a distinction between outputs and outcomes. We can say what the outputs are. We went to this number of countries. We did this. We did this. But when it comes to outcomes, how is the world different as a result of these? It's an immensely difficult piece of territory to quantify and to give out meaningful output indicators for. And that's one of the, and, and I would suggest that one of the things that's happening with a lot of traditional cultural diplomacy is that the process of contractualization is narrowing its focus. So it's now, you know, uh, so, so that those sort of more discursive activities that may actually uh, create some more sort of subtle long-term disposition aren't captured very well in, in, in the language of outputs. And that, that process of quantification is, is creating a tighter and tighter relationship between funding and discernible outputs that affect the administration in the short term. And uh, if you talk to anybody in, um, uh, certainly in Alliance Francaise, in Goethe Institute and others, they'll say that the programs that were sort of more obviously cultural are being displaced by, by programs that have more, either have earning capacity, i.e. You know, earning capacity like language lessons, or uh, where there is some discernible, relevant output indicator. And cultural exchange, as traditionally conceived, is really tough to quantify. I suspect it's the very fine-grained micro stuff that actually leads to the exchanges. I mean, certainly if you look at the blogs of musicians who are you know, touring with us or, or you talk to them, it's when you arrive in a small town um, that hasn't you know, heard any uh, you know, live jazz, probably, um, uh, ever, maybe, and you sit down with local musicians uh, and you work out what their music is, and you work out some sort of, you know, basic improvisation. You then have a concert. You do something in the school. Um, uh, you set, you, you, you know, through email or whatever else, you begin to set up relationships that just spontaneously happen and that, 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 that are maintained well after that event. Um, that sort of, you know, interweaving, if you like, of values is very different from, you know, Beyonce on the, China, on the Great Wall of China. I mean, they're just very, very, you know, and it's, it's a lot easier, you know, with the Beyonce moment to, to sort of measure that and say thousands of people, it was been around the world, it was this, it was that. But in the long term, that meshing that you get at, at the very fine grain level probably, you know, has the longer lasting effect in terms of people's basic dispositions. But I don't know how you demonstrate. It, we've learned a lot in the process. We've been doing it for a long time now. 
And so, first of all, you know, we manage expectations by telling what's involved. Secondly, we invest in some training. Thirdly, we have infrastructure to support them. Um, and we do, at the end of every uh, year, we get all the musicians back, we sit them in a room, and we get them to tell us what was good, what was bad, etc. And it's great, because they all trade anecdotes, and then we have a jam session uh, uh, that goes on most of the night. It's great, it's, it's, it's fun. So all that is a way of sort of building community and getting some sense that we've got early warning systems of when, when things go wrong, etc. Things do go wrong. The, the most obvious things that go wrong is it's a three-way relationship, not a two-way relationship. It's a relationship between Jazz at Lincoln Center, the State Department, and the posts, usually the cultural, uh, often a much larger you know, mandate in the smaller posts and outposts, uh, uh, of the, um, you know, uh, the, the, the State Department's posts. And it will depend critically on whether we have got the State Department's post to do their job. Because if they're not really thinking about it, they don't really care about it, or they just feel it's imposed, the musicians arrive in a small you know, community somewhere, and there's been no management of expectations ahead. So they end up playing to you know, the embassy staff and their spouses, or something like that. And the, you know, in other words, because they haven't, hmm? Because it actually happens a lot. Right. Uh, and, and you know, so now we have a whole, you know, we, and it's a lot easier communication these days with email and all that, but we, we spend a lot of time making sure that, you know, that doesn't happen, making sure that they know, as it were, how, how, to, how to get in touch with local musicians, how to get an audience together, how to, you know, how, how to work out which schools are interested, so that when they get, how to contact the local radio station, how to get some journalists lined up, so that there is some buzz around the event and some sense of occasion to the event. Because, yeah, the musicians, if, 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 if only two legs of the three legs are working, then it will fizzle. And um, so that's one thing. The other thing is when they don't know what to do with them. You know, you have some great group. And uh, when I, you know, they end up playing, you know, in a shopping mall in Manila, you know, uh, because the embassy didn't really think about it and they thought it would be good to take them. So, so you've got this, this group who's ready to do some master class or something and they're playing outside a fountain in a shopping mall. So, you, get, you know, I'm just, I mean, it's, it's reasonable because they don't really... You know, it, they don't really think through how best to use the occasion presented. So, yeah, there are all sorts of things. And sometimes museums get, uh, musicians just go AWOL and, you know, do bad things and, you know, just like everybody else. But generally, they're, they're, you know, they're pretty up for it and it's a great occasion and they, um, they get a lot out of it. For a start, they have the opportunity to go to exotic places that you would only ever dream of uh, with a degree of pr protection and a degree of... Um, uh, uh, you know, a degree of civility that is, you know, unusual. So to that extent, these are opportunities they tend to grab. The preceding program was brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu.